Well, we're back to 1 Timothy chapter 5 today, verse 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. And I'm going to use PowerPoint again. Many of you noticed last week that I had the wrong chapter up there, which is fine. I'm glad you noticed. It means you're paying attention. And uh, if you didn't notice, maybe it's just because you weren't looking at the PowerPoint. But uh, I had the wrong chapter up last week. This week I double-checked. I made sure. Chapter 5, verse 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. And um, I, I want to title this message, Four Switchbacks and a Rest. Four Switchbacks and a Rest. And the reason I'm... Uh, doing that, I have a little picture up here. This was from when we were in Georgetown, Colorado. Not this last summer, but the summer before. I think Henry took this picture of me there on the mountain above Georgetown. And um, many of you know I like to hike. I like to backpack. And there's a, a real joy of hiking uh, up a mountain. And it always comes at that intersection of hard work and wonder. There's hard work and there is wonder. And so first you experience the work. Whenever you're climbing a mountain, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And of course, you feel that burning of your lungs, especially if you're at high altitude, um, just uh, trying to catch your breath and your heart beats harder and your, your, your muscles get sore as you're climbing step by step higher and higher up the path. And if you're carrying a backpack, it's especially more difficult as that weight is on your shoulders or your hips. Obviously, I've got just a little day pack there, but if you're carrying a big one, uh, you really feel it. And everything gets amplified. The heat feels hotter. The sun feels brighter. The, the wind is stronger. And everything's just, just increased by the, the rate of incline. And it's a lot of pain. There's a lot of struggle. And there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. But then there are those moments when the hard work breaks through to wonder. And oftentimes you're in those switchbacks in the trees and you can't see anything about where you're going. But then you hit a clearing, you hit an opening, and you can suddenly look out and you see what you have been climbing towards. And then certainly when you get to the top, it's, it's, a, it's a wonder to take in all that is around you. And I think growing in God's Word can feel like that. There are these switchbacks that we endure as we study Scripture, um, as we uh, learn more and more of what God's Word says. And often there are those seasons in which it just feels like work. It feels like we're straining forward and we're not sure where we're going. It's just switchbacks. And yet, then we catch an, a glimpse. There's an opening in the trees. The glory of God breaks through and we're filled with wonder. And today, I just want to take us through four more switchbacks and then some rest, then some wonder as we continue on our study here through 1 Timothy. So there's some work ahead and sometimes it feels like a climb. But I just want to encourage you, there is a clearing ahead. So I'm going to start uh, with verses 17 and 18, which say, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Let me pray here as we get started. Father, I thank you for your word that does teach us and instruct us. And I thank you for the strength you give us as we uh, climb this mountain. And I pray that through the switchbacks, you will give us strength. And as we reach that point of, of vision, you will inspire us with your holy word. 
We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So switch back number one here in verses 17 and 18, and I'm going to sum it up as this. Pay the preacher for a job well done. Pay the preacher for a job well done. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Uh, but, you know, at, at, at that time, most pastors were bivocational at best. Paul himself, I mean, Paul, the, the apostle Paul was a tent maker. He was still earning a living making tents. And so he quotes a couple of uh, sources of authority here. Number one is an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Paul cites the law to uh, give an example of why you should pay the preacher for a job well done. And then he quotes none less than Jesus. This is what Jesus said. The laborer deserves his wages. If you've got a red letter Bible, maybe that's printed there in red. Because this was what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, in telling one of his parables. The laborer deserves his wages. Now, there's no warrant here for pastors to de demand extra high pay. Paul has said in 2 Corinthians that he does not encourage peddling the word of God for profit. So if some preacher on TV tries to tell you something different, don't listen to them. This is not about getting extra pay, but it's about paying the preacher for a job well done. And I want to emphasize, too, the well done part. Because notice there in verse 17, it says, the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. There is some accountability here. There's some expectation here that the elder, especially the one who preaches and teaches, must rule well. Okay, that's our first switchback. Let's move to the next one. Verses 19 to 22. It says there, Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Summing this up, I'd say be serious about holding leaders accountable, particularly leaders in the church. And um, we saw earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3 the qualifications that are laid out for elders and deacons in the church. So we know what the standard should be. And, um, you know, it's easier, though, said than done sometimes to say that there needs to be accountability for leaders, especially if nobody's complaining or things seem to be okay. It's nice to just sort of let things ride. But it's important, Paul is saying here, to keep leaders accountable. But there's some standards about how that should be done. Verse 19 makes clear that false accusations could be made, so there needs to be due process. You need to make sure you've got two or three witnesses if there's going to be a charge brought against an elder. In verse 20, 
It notes there um, that there are some who may persist in sin, and it says rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This reminds us that public sins sometimes call for public rebuke. And when we fail in leadership, there are a lot of uh, far-reaching uh, implications for that, and a lot of people can get hurt, and so and they suffer. As leaders, we forego a certain degree of privacy and must accept some scrutiny in our lives that comes with the territory of leadership. And um, so we need to be willing to be held accountable, even publicly. Verse 21 says that in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. And this is true, that there is often uh, a temptation to rush to judgment, to be hasty in making a decision. Sometimes in any organization, whether it's a church or a nation, polarization can happen. And we might just fall into certain opinions because of the group that we have associated ourselves with. But he is saying here, don't take sides prematurely, but be careful when weighing a decision regarding the leader and look at it carefully. And then in verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. This sums it up by saying it's better to choose your leaders wisely to begin with than to have to rebuke them later on. So don't rush to appoint somebody to positions of, of important leadership. And this is a great message for us today. We have our society meeting this afternoon. We're going to be appointing leaders to lead here locally in the, on the board of administration, in the pastor's cabinet. And, and it's good to remember the importance of um, being serious about holding leaders accountable. So that's switchback number two. Switchback number three. Verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Okay. So I'm going to sum that up as saying your health is important. Paul seems to be kind of bouncing around here a little bit. Some of these instructions are a bit random. I'm sure there's a certain train of thought that he's following, but we're not maybe clear now about what that was. Anyway, he drops this parenthetical note into Timothy about drinking uh, a little wine for the sake of his stomach because of his frequent ailments. Two basic inferences we can draw from this. Number one, Timothy must have had some frequent stomach problems. And number two, he must have been drinking only water. He would not be one to have been, would have been drinking alcohol. And Paul is saying, you know what? A little wine for medicinal purposes is a, is a good thing. Go ahead and, 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 and have some for that purpose. And, and, and certainly the, the application I would draw from this is simply that Paul is concerned about Timothy's health. He knows that as a leader, it's important that he take care of his body. And so in general for us, diet, exercise, general health care are important and God wants us to take care of ourselves. As leaders, we cannot become so uh, busy and preoccupied with the tasks that we neglect the care of our bodies. And Paul is giving that simple instruction there um, to Timothy for that situation. Verses 24 and 25 um, present yet another little uh, 
seemingly out of context statement that I want to return to later. Okay, we're going to come back to that. It's, um, I'll, I'll give you a clue. Our, our, our moment of rest, our panoramic vision is going to be found in those two verses. But let's not go there just yet. There's a little more climbing ahead. In fact, a lot. So oftentimes when you're climbing a mountain, it's the steepest part right at the end, isn't it? And so maybe this last switchback is even steeper than the rest. But um, verse, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. I would sum this up by saying, when faced with injustice, live for the glory of God and the truth of his word. When faced with injustice, live for the glory of God and the truth of his word. And in this passage, Paul, ESV translates it as bondservant. Many translations put it as slave. And we're very uncomfortable here trying to understand what Paul is saying, um, that he would be telling the slaves of Ephesus to honor and respect their masters really doesn't set well with us. Um, the Free Methodist Church fought for the abolition of slavery. In fact, it was part of the, the essence of our founding as a denomination in opposition to slavery, freedom from slavery. But defenders of American slavery also pointed to verses like this to try and support their cause. And it's easy now for us to kind of sit in judgment of Paul in what he says here, but we've got to take, take, make the effort here to understand his situation. Um, because first century slavery was um, perhaps different than some of the perceptions we have about um, what slavery was like here in America. In the Roman world, at that time, between one-third and one-half of the population were considered slaves. So you're talking about a significant number of people within the Roman Empire. Second, it's important to remember that in that time, slavery was not race-based. It did not have to do with uh, the color of a person's skin. Slaves were usually prisoners of war, or they were born to slaves, or they were children who had been abandoned at birth and taken into homes as slaves. And then another important thing to remember is that in the Roman system, most slaves were freed by age 30. So there was a point at which they would often achieve uh, freedom. But I think we also need to see here that Paul is not condoning slavery, but he is advocating a ministry strategy to be used for that time in this context of first century Roman slavery. So remember, we just saw it back in verse 18. Paul quoted Jesus. And what did Jesus say? A laborer deserves his wages. Now, Paul meant that to apply to the elder who preaches, but Jesus meant it for everyone. A laborer deserves his wages. 
And I know that Paul is looking forward to the day when slavery is abolished. He knows that the seeds of abolition are planted in the heart of the gospel and that the time for their implementation is coming. So again, it's easy to sit and judge Paul for his strategy here uh, because it doesn't cost us anything. But think about what would have happened if he had incited a mass slave revolt involving half the Roman population right out of the blocks of trying to get the gospel out into the rest of the world. And this is only 100 years after uh, Spartacus and the Third Servile War in Italy. So this is probably on the minds of some of the people and what would happen if there was a mass slave insurrection. But the end of slavery is explicit in the gospel. And we would have to be blind not to see it. In fact, it's right here in this very passage. Notice in verse 2, Paul says, um, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are, what? Brothers. There, is, there it is right there. They are brothers. They are brothers in Christ. They are brothers in the gospel. Everyone is on an equal footing at the foot of the cross. And I like the way N.T. Wright says it. He calls this a time bomb planted at the institution of slavery. And it's certainly expressed in, in, in another of Paul's letters as well, especially in the letter of Philemon. But the whole story of the Bible is a story about freedom from slavery. Whether you're going back to the ancient uh, Israelites enslaved in Egypt, to the condition that we all are born into as slaves to sin, Christ came to declare us free and to set us free. That is the message. He redeems us. He buys us back. And this story of redemption from slavery is at the heart of the Scriptures. It's at the heart of the Gospel. It's the whole story. Galatians 3.28 gives us that final word on slavery. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So to miss the fact that the end of slavery is explicit in the heart of the gospel, it would be to be willfully blind to what the Bible really says. It's all there. And yet, Paul, in this instance here in Ephesus, under these circumstances, is telling those who are faced with an injustice to nonetheless live for the glory of God and the truth of his word. And I want this then to bring us back around to our place of rest. We've been up four switchbacks, and now we rest. Go back to verse 25. Verses 24 and 25. It says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And I just want to emphasize here that sometimes there are great gems in Scripture, hidden in the midst of uh, other, other passages and instructions and words that we might consider them lost within. And yet there's something beautiful here. Good works cannot remain hidden. Good works cannot remain hidden. Maybe this seems a little out of place in the midst of all these other instructions about drinking a little wine for your stomach, about counsel given to slaves. But I think this is the key to the whole section. It's the clearing in the trees that opens up our view to understanding what Paul is really talking about here. He's talking about good works. 
And what do we mean when we see these, this phrase, good works? What's so special about these good works? Well, a good work is anything we do that is genuinely good. And it is genuinely good and when it brings glory to God and to his name. When we think about the good works we might do, there's an infinite variety of, of options or, or ways in which we might uh, do good works. And, and most of them are very simple acts. Most of them go unnoticed by others or get much attention. But think about a, a, a word of encouragement that you might give to somebody else or, or a prayer that you offer on behalf of someone in need. Maybe you just call them up and pray for them over the phone. Maybe it's a gift you've given. Maybe it's an act of service you've done for somebody else. Maybe it's going the extra mile on a particular project at work or in school. Maybe it's time that you took just to listen to somebody else as they shared what they were struggling with. Paul says that good works are conspicuous. They're conspicuous. What does that mean? Well, it means that, that they're, they're noticeable. People see them. They stand out to others. Good works uh, are recognized and appreciated. They're good in and of themselves, but they're also good because they get noticed. And they're particularly good when they get noticed in a way that brings glory and praise and honor to God. That's what God is glorified in. But what if our works aren't conspicuous? What if no one ever sees them? What if we feel like it was wasted because nobody noticed? Here's the gem hidden in this passage. He says, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. It's at the end there of verse 25. Even those good works that are not conspicuous cannot remain hidden. Why is this? What makes every good work known? God makes it known. God shines the spotlight. So every good work done for the glory of God's name will shine for all eternity. Every good work done for the glory of God's name will shine for all eternity. Do you believe that? I hope you believe that. I find great encouragement in that. I find a lot of hope in knowing this to be true, that nothing good is wasted, that nothing sacrificed for God is ever lost. It all remains etched in eternity as a monument to his grace and to the glory of his name. That's a great hope. That's a great encouragement. The same truth comes out later in chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, and we'll get there again in a couple weeks. But he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's talking about good works again. He's saying that it is laying up a treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future. This is life. Our good works lay that good foundation for the future. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the privilege we have as believers to do good works that shine to the glory of God and they will be noticed. And if they're not noticed now, they'll be noticed in eternity. 
Paul says it in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those good works don't have to be um, catching headlines. They're just simple things we do day by day. It's what we do here and now. It's what God created us for. Psalm 34.3 says, Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So I'm going to see if... Oh, can you see that? Is that very clear? This was another picture Henry took once we got to the top. Um... It's kind of in the distance. He, he had one of those panoramic kind of cameras that was able to take a real wide shot. But there you are at the top, and you get to see all the mountains all around you. And what a beautiful view it is to rest and to know that what we do when done to the glory of God is never forgotten. When it seems like nobody's noticing, when it seems like um, uh, there's no fruit in what you're doing, when maybe it seems like somebody else is getting the credit for the work you've done, Remember that when God's name is magnified, every good work will shine for all eternity. There's so many ways I could think of, uh, of how to apply this. Because there's so many things we do that we strive for that we feel go unrecognized or, or maybe not appreciated in the way that we should. Or we feel like maybe it wasn't going to work out in the end anyway. I think about how as foster parents, uh, you know, we sometimes bring children into homes and we, we love them, we care for them, we nurture them, we treat them as our own, and we provide for them safety and comfort and provision and nurture and all those things for months and months and months on end. And then they go back into a situation where you're not so sure they're going to get what they need. And your heart breaks. You're like, why did we do this? Did it really help? Will it really make a difference in the end? And one of the things Rachel and I often reminded each other of is that that child experienced God's love, even if it was only for six months. And that will never leave them. That good work is a blessing into their lives that God is glorified in, and it will impact eternity. And this is true of all the different things we do in life. Um, we cling to this promise, whether you're, you're teaching Sunday school lessons year after year, week after week, or you're, you're uh, cooking meals for your family that doesn't always appreciate uh, the food you provide, or you're cleaning dishes, or you're attending finance committees because you're on this committee that you've been on for 20 years. You're grading papers again. You're repairing a tire, you're coaching a game, you're mowing a lawn, you're, you're um, uh, reviewing an account, you're pounding a nail. Every good work done for the glory of God's name will shine for all eternity. This is what we as Christians are blessed with, to know that nothing is wasted for God's glory. It's our mission, boldly stated now on our wall in the lobby. Glorifying God, reaching a changing world rooted in the unchanging word. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and we are praying for Christians around the globe who are suffering often um, in isolation, often uh, without recognition or notice. 
It reminds me of a book I just finished reading by NPR correspondent David Green. And he rode the entire Trans-Siberian Railroad a few years ago in the dead of winter. And he wrote about his experience just being on the train and uh, talking to the people along the way, visiting different villages and seeing what life in Russia was like. And it's called Siberia at Midnight is the name of his book. And um, at one point in the story, he, he comes to a village where he had heard that there had once been a massive Soviet work camp. Um, and he had even read a recent report that said that there had been hundreds of thousands of people exiled to this Soviet camp during Stalin's years. And that as many as 100,000 may have died there. It's impossible for us to get our minds around those kinds of numbers. They were sent to this camp, and it was near the Volga River, so it's not quite into Siberia yet. But they were sent there to build a hydroelectric dam. For decades, hundreds of thousands of people working on this hydroelectric dam that never really worked. It never even really, it produced a little bit of electricity, but, but barely any. And, and he was trying to find some remnant of this camp. And he said all that they could find was this stone. Uh, it wasn't even on the, 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 the tour guides or the maps. I have a picture of it here from this book. It has a little plaque on it, um, simply recognizing, this says, this is the beginning of remembering the victims of the Volga camps. It was almost buried in snow. Somebody had left a little bouquet of flowers there. This is it. Hundreds of thousands of people lived and died in these camps. Pulled from their homes, their villages, their families, never to return. How many acts of kindness or, or good deeds were done in those camps that no one will ever know about? How many acts of sacrifice that only God knows of? And I assure you, God knows. And so we remember that every good work done for the glory of God's name will shine for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes as we go through life, we can feel frustrated, maybe discouraged, maybe wondering whether what we do makes a difference or matters or if anybody notices. And yet, Father, I thank you that in your eternal goodness, you redeem all things. And that every good work done to your name, for your name and for your glory, will shine for all eternity. Remind us of that when we struggle with the regular challenges of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together as we prepare for communion this morning.